Has anybody ever told you you look like somebody? You look like your mother. You look like your, 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 your father. You look like your brother or your sister. And, you know, genetically you could probably expect that. That's to be expected. You have the nose or you have the ears or you have the forehead or you have the eyes. There's so many things genetically that are way past my, uh, my pay grade to try to be able to figure out or to, to understand. But that, that, that is a compliment most of the time and most of us receive it as a compliment that, oh, you look just like your mother, you look like your father and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we take that kind of as a compliment. But then there's the argument that ensues between a husband and wife and the husband says to the wife or the wife to the husband, you act just like your fill-in-the-blank. That we don't receive as a compliment. Because I guess given the context, no matter what it is, it's not received well. We all have those good qualities that we want to pass on, those bad qualities that we would like to forget and move on from. But we are looking like somebody. We are constantly looking like someone it's, it's sad, though, we need to choose who we're going to look like. You know, have you ever considered you might look like your pet? You know, whatever your pet may be. I mean, here's a couple of photos of some people that look a little bit like their pets. Just kind of scroll through those. Yeah, okay, you, you just get all these different looks of these different people. So uh, choose your pet. I did not know that one was going to be there. So choose your pet. Is the moral of that story. Oh, how do you recover from that one? Are you an event or are you a process? Are you an event or are you a process? Events happen in history. Events happen and they end. There's a beginning and an ending. Events are great in time, and, 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 but it's hard to be a constant event. Events are based in history, and you learn from history, but you never want to live in history, okay? So I'm not negating events. But processes move us to the future. Processes say, I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. I, I'm still under construction, if you will. I'm still happening. I'm still transforming. I'm still changing. And processes, I think, is a more biblical way to consider who we are. Now, some of us don't allow ourselves to be in process. Some of us have got the biblical knowledge. Some of us have had the Christian years of experience. Some of us have been in churches for forever and ever, and we have got the Christian gig figured out. But it's so much more than that. It's not figuring out the gig It's becoming. Are you, period, or are you becoming? And I want to propose to you that I think God created us to become, to constantly be in process. I think Henry Blackaby said it well in his great study that every believer needs to do, experiencing God. He said, you cannot go with God and stay where you are. God is moving. Are you moving with him? God is constantly in a process of changes. God never changes. I know His character and His essence never changes. But God is constantly going through a world that is ever-evolving, and He is, he is, he is working in, those, in, in the world differently in so many ways. He is a rock in the Bible, but He's also water. 
in the Bible. So you've got to understand Christ and God as He is even in the, in the whole part of the transforming process. It's not that, oh, we arrive and we are there. And we will never be there. We will never have arrived. Otherwise, we become that event. Hang with me on this. God is about movement and change. I want to say it to you again. God is about movement and change. In one word, that is transformation. Movement and change. Movement and change. One word, transformation. God is about transforming us into His likeness. We have been studying since January the whole journey of the faith and probably no other element speaks more to journeying or processing than the word transformation. The word transformation is one of our core values. You think, I've never heard transformation as one of our core values. It's the word discipleship in movement. Again, I think we have made discipleship an event that we come and we do discipleship. Discipleship is never being done as an event. It is a process that I am going through. I am becoming a disciple. I am learning. I am changing. I am morphing, if you will. We grow deeper through worship is what we spoke about in January. And a deeper life is what we want, but worship is what connects us with God. We grow together through community. We spent all of February talking about that and the value of being in community with one another. And then also this, this month we really have looked at in, in, in different ways, and we'll kind of even bring it to a close next week, but that we grow stronger through transformation. And that God is transforming us and He is making us something. And through that making us something, we become stronger. Here's a couple of verses for you out of Romans 8, 29. Out of the Living Bible, it paraphrases it like this. From the very beginning, God decided that those who come to Him, and He knew who, who would, should become like His Son. Out of the message, Ephesians 4, 15. God wants us to grow up like Christ in everything, it speaks of transformation. It speaks of transformation. Are you becoming or have you arrived? You say, oh, well, I haven't arrived. Well, then my question is, are you becoming? Because if you haven't arrived and you're not becoming, then that just means you're stale, stagnant, and going nowhere. You've really got three options. You can either live in this event mentality that I am a Christian, therefore I'm okay. Or you can get stagnant in your faith, or you can move to becoming and allowing God to constantly change and move you. Again, you cannot go with God and stay where you are. What is God doing in your life right now? How is He changing you right now? How is He morphing you right now? We, we have a, a purpose statement. We have a great commitment to the great commandment to build a great church for our great God. The two key elements in there is the great commission and the great commandment. In the great commission, He gives us what we are to be about. We are to be about making disciples is what we call that. But really when He says teaching them to observe, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teaching them. 
We stop there many times and that's the event. To observe, there is an element that there has to be a morphing. If we are only teaching for information, we are not doing discipleship. If I am only going to a class, I am not becoming a disciple just because I go to a class. We've got perspectives going on. Going to perspectives does not make you a disciple. Information doesn't make you a disciple. Transformation makes you a disciple. And really, while you're going to start hearing us use the word transformation more than the word disciples to, to, I guess, detox from our misunderstanding of the word disciple. We have made it to be about simply learning, getting information, and not be about transformation. You've got to have the information for transformation, but just because you have information does not mean you have transformation. Think about it. In your life, are you becoming? Are you a process? Or have you arrived? Take your Bibles be finding the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Probably a very familiar passage of Scripture. Chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 is where most people read and stop. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, say it like this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is a marvelous, beautiful event that takes place when we become saved, when we are born again, when our life is turned over into... No, not turned over, excuse me. When our life is new. And we have a new life and a new beginning. It's a beautiful verse worthy of memorizing and quoting and sharing with people who are far from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There's nothing of your own doing. You can't, you can't be baptized enough. You can't be good enough. It's amazing. Even many times in our good deeds there are bad motives. Selfish motives. Wanting fame for ourselves or recognition for ourselves. So I wouldn't even, I would take half of my best deeds and I'd have to bring them into subject questioning to whether or not they're truly pure and right. So I can't be good enough. I can't be baptized enough. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Now, that's a great ver- those are great two verses to, to hang your hat on, to hang your faith on, if you will. But verse 10 is right in context. And verse 10 many times is overlooked. For we are His workmanship. Workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I like that word workmanship. It comes from an artistic word, a poetic word, as if you're working on clay and you're, you're bringing it to, to a beautiful piece of pottery. Whatever it is, we've got to realize that God has saved us. God, by His grace and through our faith, has saved us, has reached into the mire of our life, pulled us out. Beautiful story, beautiful songs have been written about just that very thing. But he didn't stop there. He did it. For we are his workmanship. 
He's working on us. You're a piece of art. Okay, maybe modern art. Maybe art that's unexplainable. But you're art. We're art. We're, we are, God is working on us and wants to work in our life and wants to transform us. Another thing, just to ratchet up a little bit more, you are a unique piece of art. I was born at Roger St. Mary's Hospital, July 28, 1968. As far as I know, there was the only, I was the only Michael Lee McDaniel born on that day. You know, born in that hospital on that day, I was the absolute best piece of art by that name born at Roger St. Mary's Hospital. But I was also the worst piece of art born at Roger St. Mary's Hospital on that day. What am I going to be? A beautiful piece of art? Something that God could put me on the shelf of heaven and say, yes, this is what I designed and created Mike McDaniel for? Or is it going to be one of those pieces of art, man, I worked for 50, 60, 70 years on Mike and I could just never get him to be transformed. Filled him with all kinds of knowledge, sent him to all kinds of schools, gave, put all kinds of people around him. He got all the information, but it never changed his life. Let us get to what real discipleship is. It's transformation. Let us become that. God uses, if we're a piece of art, if you will, and I'm going to hang with that metaphor all the way through here. If, if, if we're a piece of art, God uses unconventional tools on us, okay? Not the everyday tools that you might think of. All right, here's a couple of tools that he might use, some unexpected tools. God uses troubles, number one, to teach us to trust him. God uses troubles to teach us to trust him. Now, if you are not in troubles right now, get ready, you will be. And you've heard the statement, if you're not in trials or coming out of trials, you're, excuse me, if, you're, if you are not in trials, you are either coming out or going into trials. Troubles abound in this world, don't they? I counted ten cars on the interstate in the median. They are having all kinds of troubles in their life right now between here and my home. There's all kinds of troubles in our lives. Going to work sometimes creates tremendous troubles. Coming home from work in a, in a tenacious home, all kinds of troubles. Life is full of troubles. You can't get away from them. God wants to take your ordinary, trouble-filled, racked-up, messed-up life and use actually the very troubles that you are in to develop you. Here's a verse for you. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4 says, Troubles produce patience. Patience produces character. Character produces hope. There's not a person in this room that would not like to live a life full of hope. Well, back into that baby, okay? You're going to have to have character. What's it going to take to have character? Well, you're going to have to have patience. What's it going to take to have patience? You're going to have to have troubles. God wants to build into your life character. Let's, he wants to build into your life patience. He wants to build hope into your life. But many times it's going to require a life with troubles, with issues, 
You know, you might be thinking about your own career advancement and why you didn't get the promotion and somebody else did. In this day and age, it's just like, thank God I have a job, let alone a promotion. But you might be sitting here thinking, why is it God and I did this and I, and I tithe and I do this and why isn't God doing this for me? You know what? Have you ever thought that maybe God isn't as concerned about your career as you are? That actually the career may be number one for you, but it may not be number one for God? That actually your character may be more important than your career. Jesus himself lived a life of troubles. When you think about it, we're, we're just weeks away from Easter and I'm doing a lot of prayer and preparation for that time and just really preparing my heart. And I think back to the time when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and I never understood for the longest time when Jesus was going through that anguishing moment. And it said that he sweat drops like blood. Sweat drops like blood. I picked up a, a copy of the Journal of American Medicine one time that somebody had passed on to me where doctors had gone in and studied the human body and how that could physically happen to anybody. And they have a word for it, and I'm going to try to say it, hemiohydrosis. And this is what it said in the article. Occurs when a highly emotional state, a result of a hemorrhaging, into the sweat glands. Basically, whenever you are under so much stress and so much strain and so much trouble in your life that your sweat glands spill over into your, excuse me, your blood vessels spill over, hemorrhage into your sweat glands. Not a pretty picture. We're going to talk about a life of trouble. They came in the garden, they called Gethsemane, Jesus said to his disciples, said he, here while I pray, distress and anguish came over him. And he said, the sorrow in my heart is so great that it's almost crushing me. We can't talk about troubles and learn how to live through troubles if we don't see the value in them. God is crushing Jesus is dying under the weight of just the weight of it all. And his, his body life group, if you will, is falling asleep when they should be praying for him. This is what he said in verse 14, verse 36. Chapter 14, verse 36, he said, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will, not mine. See, a life that we're going to have, if Jesus living perfectly on this earth is going to have a life of troubles, how can we ask for anything else? Because God is going to take those troubles to build into us patience. He's going to take that patience to build into us character. He's going to take that character and He's going to build into us hope. We all like hope, but we all don't want to get necessarily pay the price to get there. We all like character, but we don't necessarily want to pay the price to get there. Helen Keller has inspired generations, decades upon decades. And this is what she said. Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Wow. I like that. 
I don't like the part that it says that trials are going to come. How do you deal with the trials? How do you improve your trusting in the midst of this? One, jot these down real quickly. Just some handles for you to hold on when you walk out of here and God puts you in the oven and you're in that trials. How do you do it? How do you deal with it? How do you cope with it? Keep a journal, a spiritual journal. I looked through the cabinets and ran out of time, but I was going to bring you the journal that I first started journaling in 1985. When I first started journaling, it was then when I picked up this little book called A Spiritual Journal and I started writing down things. I didn't even know what I was doing. Nobody else in my, in my circles of influence was doing anything like this and I had no clue, but I just had this kind of thing and I needed to. And you know what? If I were to find that and I will find it, and if I were to bring it to you today, I could open that, that book, crusty as it may be, and find you how on January 22nd in 1985, God solidified my call to the ministry. And I go back and I remember when Dr. Wendell Estep was preaching at Arkansas Baptist Assembly and I was hearing that and I can remember that day. And you know what? I can, I'm able to go back and look at the pillars and the flags of my life because I was able to journal through them, the good and the bad. Keep a spiritual journal. Numbers 33.2 says, the Lord, At the Lord's direction, Moses kept a written record of their progress. Listen, if God's talking, write it down. If God's working, you better get the pen and paper out. All right? It's worthy of listening to. It's worthy of marking it down. It's worthy of going back and drawing on. Number two. Remember the reward. Remember the reward. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says this, Our light and momentary troubles. It's easy to say when you're on the outside of the troubles, but when you're in the trouble, troubles are hell. All right? No, no doubt about it. They're tough. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. There's coming a day when the troubles that we speak of, the troubles that we're living in, the anguish, the health issues, the money issues, the job issues, the relationship issues, the stresses and strains of life, whenever we stay faithful and we allow God to do the character work in us, it's amazing what happens. You are not listening fast enough, all right? I've got to go faster. All right, number two, second tool he uses is God uses temptation to teach us to obey. Temptation to teach us to obey. Jesus was led by the Spirit of the desert and tempted by the devil. Now, I don't like that phrase in there, into the desert. He was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. I've struggled with that phrase for a long time. Why in the world would God lead me doesn't lead me into temptation, but he leads me around, allows me to be in and around temptation. Wouldn't God want me to be completely free of temptation? No, he wants to be free of sin. You don't need to linger in temptation. But as you follow God, there will be times that you'll find yourself tempted. You know what? You can be tempted here today. Tempted by envy and anger and jealousy and loss just by looking around at people. There's, there's no way to escape the temptation element, there is ways to escape temptation. All right? Like one lady went shopping. She had a problem with shopping. She liked to buy things. 
Her husband said, listen, when you go out shopping and you feel that temptation, just say, Satan, get behind me. And that's it. You know, you, you go on. So then he, he, he gets out there in the situation and, and she's, she's shopping and she's looking at this dress and she comes home with the dress and she knows she's going to have to explain it to her husband at this point. Her husband says, why didn't you say, get, get behind me, Satan? Get out of here and all that kind of stuff. He says, well, I told him to get behind me. He said it looked really good back here too, so I bought it. You know what? That's not getting out of the temptation. There's so much more I could say about this, but every time Jesus, well, here's one time, Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, says, get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. This is when he was being tempted. The scriptures say, worship only the Lord God and obey only Him. Worship Him only, obey Him only. The other examples is Moses, when Moses was preparing the people of Israel after 40 years of being put on the shelf because of their disobedience. It says this, he says, And they took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And he said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Forty years of wandering in the desert. God's calling him to obey. Calls us to obey. Bringing it down to obedience. Three quick things that you can jot down to help you in obedience and to deal with the temptations. Keep focused on right thoughts. Clean out the trash of your mind. Absolutely get the mind. Take captive, as Paul said, every thought. If you don't capture it and defeat it at the mind level, it will quickly move through the bloodstream of spirit, if you will, through life, and it will be in your life. Get a spiritual partner. You need somebody in your life. I think men with men and women with women in this area. As you're dealing with your temptations, as you're dealing with your issues, you need to have somebody that can really hold you up in prayer and that can really hold you accountable in love. You need somebody. Find you a spiritual partner. Bond with them. Stay with them. Ecclesiastes, which we spoke of recently, supports that. And keep your eyes on the exit. Anytime there is a temptation, there is always a way out of the temptation. Read this verse with me. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Yes, God's Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And yes, He was tempted in the wilderness. And yes, God's going to lead you to work tomorrow and you will be tempted at work tomorrow. You will be led home and you will be tempted at home. But whether or not you can find the escape and take the escape, that is going to be largely up to your determination at that point. Finally, the third tool He uses is God uses trespasses to teach us to forgive. I think we all know of people who have offended us. We all have them. And don't you wish you could learn forgiveness from a textbook? You could parse the verb and you could decline the nouns and you could do all that with all the languages and and you could really write a a thesis maybe on, on the word forgiveness. But you don't get forgiveness from a textbook and you don't get it from a classroom and you won't get it from a Bible study group. You get it in life. You learn forgiveness the same way you learn patience. 
The same way you learn love. You know how you learn to love somebody? Get somebody in your life that you can't stand. You know how you learn patience? You live in an impatient situation. You know how you learn forgiveness? Let somebody offend you. Now, you don't have to go looking for this. They'll come looking for you. Don't worry about it. But when they come looking for you and when you encounter it and when you feel that opportunity and somebody has broken trust with you, He teaches us forgiveness as we live in the trespasses of life. C.S. Lewis said it like this, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. I think that's pretty true. It's hard to forgive at that point. It was in Matthew 27, verse 39, that says this, passing, People passing by shook their heads, hurled their insults at Jesus. And the elders made fun of Him. Now just, just realize all of this coming all around Him. Even the bandits who, were, who had been crucified with Him insulted Him in the same way. Here He is living in insults, living in accusations, living in assaults. And He'd done nothing wrong. He had been betrayed. He had... What was His response? I'll take care of you. I'll fix you. No, His, his response is quite clear and quite definitive. Luke 23 to 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive these people because they don't know what they're doing. How do you do that? How do you literally offer forgiveness to people insulting you, betraying you, hurting you, turning their back on you? A couple of things and I'm finished. Remember, God has forgiven me. Start with yourself. Look in your own mirror And remember that God forgave you. God has forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32 says, Forgive others just as God forgave you because of Christ. But here's number two. Remember, forgiveness is is free and not earned. I've said that a hundred times in here. And the realization that when you've been betrayed, when you have had your trust broken, when you have been hurt, when they've hurled the insults at you. There's nothing inside... Listen, there's nothing inside of you that says to forgive. There's nothing inside of you in the rational mind of humanity that says, offer forgiveness. There's nothing in the common sense of mankind that says forgive. It's only in a spiritual relationship when you realize you have been forgiven, that you can forgive others. It's only in a spiritual relationship that you realize that forgiveness is not earned. It's given. Lewis Smead made this statement. It's a long paragraph. Let me read it to you. When you forgive someone, you slice away the wrong from the person who did it. You disengage that person from his hurtful act. You recreate him. At one moment, you identify him as that eradicably as the person you did who did you wrong. The next moment, 
you change that identity. He is made in memory. You think of him now not as the person who hurt you, but as the person who needs you. Can I read that sentence alone again? You think of him now as the person, not as the person who hurt you, but as the person who needs you. You feel him now not as the person who alienated you, but as the person who belongs to you. Once you branded him as a person powerful in evil, but now you see him as a person weak in his needs. You recreated your past by recreating the person whose wrong made your past painful. This is a choice. When we choose to forgive, God's going to use unconventional tools to shape us in this world, to make us that beautiful piece of art. He's usually going to use pain. He's going to use trials and temptations all around us. He's even going to use troubles where people have betrayed us. But He's using all of that to make us a beautiful piece of art. Would you pray with me? I want you to reflect on the pain for a moment. Reflect on troubles that you may be living in right this moment. That you're angry at God, disappointed with God. I want you to think of the troubled people in your life who have broken promises and hindered your own walk of life and sanity in life. I want you to think about And as you think about that, would you allow God to do a work in you right now? A work to forgive, a work to restore, a work to renew, whatever that may be, the work that He wants to do in you. And that may mean coming today and just kneeling at the front and laying your troubles there and laying your broken relationships there and and, and, and laying your disobedience there. Maybe you have not taken the escape and the temptations, but you have succumbed to them. And renewing a commitment today to say, Lord Jesus Christ, make of me a beautiful work. I'm going to be just here sitting at the front. If you want somebody to pray with you, I'd be glad to. This is your time. Father, as we reflect and we respond to you today, we respond to amazing amounts of work all around us. Work not to simply inform us, but work where you're wanting to transform us. Father, some of the things that we push back on, some of the things that we've run from, Some of the things that we have harbored in our hearts, pain, broken trust, have hindered us from becoming like you, Lord. 
if we could only look at you a little deeper, a little further, and become like you a little bit more today, then I think then we understand what discipleship looks like. Father, this is your time with us. Teach us, dear Lord, in Jesus' name.